Would you stand with me as we read this morning, please? This morning we're reading from chapter 14 of Luke. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. The word of the Lord. Good morning. About uh, really almost 10 years ago, I moved, as many of you know, from New York City to Rockwall. And there, that's obviously a big change, but there are a lot of things to really love about Rockwall and living here. And I've always respected the people who land here. You, you land here because a lot of people say, you know, I could have made more money if I stayed in a big urban center. I could have run that rat race, but I wanted more for my family, wanted more time with my kids, and so I moved out of that rat race, and I'm, I'm willing to, to settle even though settle isn't really the right word, but to receive less and to have more time for other things. And I came here for my kids. The, the ISD is good, and to have a little bit more space and to enjoy community. And indeed, the people here are, I have found to be lovely and willing to sacrifice on behalf of one another. But there's something else in moving from New York City to Rockwall or to Texas or to the Bible Belt at large that you realize isn't necessarily so good or so helpful. And that is, Christianity can exist as a pervasive notion that doesn't really require anything of you. And so living in New York City, if you said you were a Christian, that meant something because it cost you something. It wasn't cool to be a Christian. No one throws Christian in their name like, uh, like a uh, Christian brother's automotive. 
No one throws an ichthus, a fish, on their car or on their business door. Right? That's something to be mocked. But coming here, it seems like it was very popular. That's the cool thing almost to do. It certainly doesn't cost you anything to be Christian. It's pervasive. In fact, we see in it, in many regards, some advantage. I think this can be very confusing, and it helps to facilitate something that the parables are constantly speaking against, which is the notion of what would traditionally be called a nominal Christianity. And what that means is that you're a Christian largely in name only. Right? You claim to believe certain things, but it has very little impact on your life, and by and large, you do what you want to do. And now, it's kind of an old term, nominal Christianity. But I think there are several ways that we, we get this, and we might be able to define it a little bit more clearly. Right? There's, uh, there's January gym attendance Christianity. Right? You know this, we're about to hit the new year, and if you ever go to the gym, you know that in January and February... The gym is packed. It's, you don't even want to go in January. You can't even find a locker. Because so many people have made a New Year's resolution, right? I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to hit the gym. And you start to talk to these people and say, oh, you, you got a membership for Christmas? No, I've been a member for five years. Well, what are you doing here? Well, I'm, this is it. I'm getting serious, right? And a little time goes by, and right, they can stay home and watch the game, or it's cold and hard to get to the gym, or for whatever reason, by March, the gym's cleared out. It's pretty much back to normal, and you can enjoy your time there, right? And this is just one analogy of how people approach Christianity in our culture. Yeah, I'm going to be very serious for this particular period of time, but inevitably, that seriousness doesn't continue in any term, any kind of real discipleship. But it's not the only kind of Christianity that exists around us. There's, a, uh, there's also, I'm not really on a diet, but I am on a diet Christianity. And this looks like, yeah, I'm very serious about this diet. I'm, um, I'm watching what I eat. Uh, or it can be like, I'm going to watch uh, the kinds of food that I eat. I'm just going to eat protein, a little bit of fat, no carbohydrates. But you eat, right, 10,000 calories of protein. And so you're not really necessarily paying attention the way that you should. Or you go through the day being extremely disciplined, and you get to 8 o'clock, and you're tired, and you say, oh, I did really good today. I'm going to reward myself with a bowl of ice cream. And so the diet is undermined, even though there's a perception of being on it. There's really not faithfulness through and throughout what's required of you. There's another kind of Christianity here that is one of my favorites, which is uh, my child is an Olympian Christianity. And this is the notion that my child is particularly gifted. No, I know everyone says that, but my child really is gifted. And my whole world is going to kind of revolve around the gifts of my child. And once I have spun my child off to embrace the world and their greatness, then I can get back to being serious about the things that God calls me to. All examples of different emphases we find in different versions of what would be called nominal Christianity. And what the parables are saying over and over again, this should cause us to just stop in our tracks and to really think about where we are in terms of our discipleship with Christ, is we get this picture over and over that, that many have been invited, but only some really get that invitation. And it's only those that respond appropriately that find themselves actually at the wedding feast or at the great banquet or included in some capacity, and the others find themselves judged. 
And while we're not you know, speaking to all the details of that judgment this morning, it should give us pause to really look at what we call Christianity, what we call discipleship, and see if it really has something in common or is informed by the Bible's picture of discipleship. And the parable of the great banquet is a great place to do that. In fact, it will do it for us and challenge us significantly. There's really just two uh, aspects to this section of Scripture that I want us to focus on this morning. And the first aspect is that your guest list says more about you than it does about your guests. Okay, this is the teaching portion that comes right before the parable. And the notion here is that your guest list says more about you than it does about your guests. Well, what, what do I mean by that? Now, unlike most other parables, Jesus gives very deliberate, very particular teaching here. He's going to literally tell you what he expects out of this parable as he begins to go into the parable. And this is what he says. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And Jesus emphasizes literally inviting the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Right? These would all be social outcasts. Not only would they be social outcasts, but they would be perceived as sinners. Why are they suffering this way? Well, obviously, they've sinned. Right? That is the widespread conception in the ancient world at the time of Jesus. If you are suffering in some capacity, like a physical handicap or that you are not making ends meet financially, it is a result of sin in your life. And Jesus says, these are the people I want you to be sure to invite when you're throwing a banquet or a dinner party. Sounds kind of harsh, kind of hard. It kind of sounds like Jesus isn't necessarily interested in us having any fun. And I preach it with some trepidation. One preacher said he preached this uh, passage to his congregation and that week, he received two invitations to dinner that he had never received before. <laughs> to households. He said he wasn't sure what person he was perceived to be. But, so, I'm worried that I'll get invited to dinner this week. But is Jesus a buzzkill? Is that the point of what he's saying? It's not, you know, what's wrong with hanging out with friends? But I work hard and... And raising a family is hard. And when I finally have a break, I want to gather with people I enjoy and people I love and and sit down and share time together. Is that wrong? I don't think Jesus is necessarily saying you can't do that or attacking that. But he's warning that maybe that's more dangerous if that's all that you do than you think it is. Why would Jesus give this instruction? Why would it be important to him? Now, one of the things I want to point out this morning is that it's at this point the nominal Christianity and real discipleship, it's a fork in the road which exists all the time and you're going to go one direction or another. So if you're January gym attendance only Christians, right, what do you say? Handicapped, blind for dinner? Hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm going to do that in that maybe during some season when I get really serious about my faith and that I'll do it then. But right now I'm going to go to Zanatas with my friends and enjoy a good evening. Or... Right, if you're um, if you're not the uh, the January gym membership only, but I'm on a diet, but not really Christianity, you're going to say, well, 
yeah, I, you know, I could engage something like that. I could invite the handicapped and the poor over. Um, but, you know, I think instead I'll just give to an organization that handles that. And that way I'm engaged in this practice, but I don't, I'm not really called personally to engage the handicapped and the poor and the lame and the blind. You need to be specialized to do that. So this way I'm really practicing my Christianity, but I don't necessarily have to touch or come into contact with those people. Or my child is an Olympian Christianity, right? What are you going to say? Yes, I am so committed to that as soon as my child graduates. Right? right now, my primary calling is what's, that this is far more important. Seeing my child achieve and be all that they can be. And you could replace that with any kind of commitment that someone uh, uh, makes a priority over being a real disciple. Right? Anytime we're actually taking a command of the Lord and putting it on the back burner and distancing ourselves from it, we realize that we're not really practicing discipleship. We're pretending in our faith in any number of ways, but we can't allow ourselves to think, yes, I'm really being faithful. Far from it. We're coming up with reasons not to be faithful. Now again, the question still looms, why would Jesus say this? Why would he, why would he not want us to spend time with our friends? Right? I'm going to presume that Jesus loves me enough that he's trying to prevent me harm, that he really has my best interest at stake. So why is it in my best interest to actually have dinner with the blind and the lame, those handicapped, those who are social outcasts? Maybe. Maybe I run the risk that if I'm only eating and hanging out with the people that I like, if I'm only pursuing people that I like and people that I want to like me, then I'm living out of a certain image that I have for myself, and I just want that image to be facilitated. Right? I want to preserve this notion of who I am. Right? Because when I hang out with people I like, I have a good time and get to talk about the things that I want to talk about. And when I hang out with people who I want to like me back, well, it has the opportunity to bring me into better social circles or to raise, make me feel better about myself. And maybe Jesus is worried that you'll actually think that that's life. And he wants you to wake up and realize that that's nothing but death. Right? You get together with your friends, and I don't know where you are in life. You can discuss all sorts of things, whatever your hobbies are, but... There's one reality that we tend to gather with people who are just like us, and so we might get together and talk about things that aren't really that significant. You know, have you, have you checked out the new, the new water slide at Great Wolf Lodge? Right? Let's go there. Or the skiing supposed to be spectacular this year with uh, El Nino, extra snow. Right? Or, or have you had that new meat from Central Market? Right? The calf right, was fed in ancient grain discovered in Pompeii under the ashes, and it was, it was hand-brushed for 15 minutes every day, and it's, it's unbelievable. You've got to try it. And so when you gather with people, you get to celebrate these things that you love and are drawn to, right? But, but then when you start to sit down with the poor and the handicapped, right, those who are sinners or perceived to be sinners, those who are social outcasts, and you start to have those conversations, you think, yeah, great, we'll fly. And the person says, yeah, I don't know, I can't. I can't afford to go there. Never been. Or skiing, and the person says, "Yeah, I, you know, I actually loved skiing before the accident, but haven't been able to ski in ten years." Or you talk about the meat, and the person says, "Yeah, wow, that sounds amazing. That meat costs more than my whole week's budget for groceries." And then you start to realize, oh, 
right? You find yourself suddenly in a very awkward place. But why is it awkward? Why do you care? You see, in, in sitting down with the broken and the handicapped and the poor and the social outcast, you've backed yourself into a corner. And this is the corner you've backed yourself into. Either you have, to, you have to go through this awkwardness and say, you know what, I still think life is Great Wolf Lodge and skiing and meat from Central Market. And if you say that, you know that what you're doing is utterly dehumanizing the other person. Because you're saying, by virtue of your place, you can't experience what it truly means to be human. Right? What I'm defining as what it means to experience life and, in, and to experience joy, you can't actually participate in that because of your social situation or your physical situation. Right? And to declare that anyone made in the image of God is less than human or has less than the opportunity of being human is to ultimately dehumanize yourself. And so you die a little bit in doing that. The other option, though, is then to say, oh, I must conclude that my vision of life is misinformed. It's more about an image of life than about real life because I can't say that this person can't have life or can't have joy, especially if I'm a Christian. So I have to rethink what I'm committed to in terms of life and joy and what brings me happiness. And at that moment, then everything that you value and everything you've spent so much time sitting down with your friends to talk about and engage in, is suddenly the carpet is ripped out from under it. And you have to admit that that can't be real life because this person can't experience those things, but you can't say that that person can't have real life. And either way, you choose. You have to die a little bit. You either have to die in the sense that you will become less than human and move away from Christ because you'll have to say that person is less than human. Or you'll die a little bit in a good way because it's not you that's dying. It's actually your image of life that's dying. And you begin to come alive. You begin to wake up and realize that Great Wolf Lodge and skiing and meat from Central Market really isn't going to make that big a difference in your life. This is what's happening when we actually sit down and we dine with the handicapped and the oppressed. We face this option once we're backed into a corner and we, and we realize, by God's grace, when the Spirit is moving, the good way to go is to be reminded in this beautiful moment, oh, what I am coming to value and define as life is not life at all. And this person reminds me of that. This person wakes me up. There's actually a beautiful picture of this in the horse and his boy, which is C.S. Lewis's third uh, chronicle of uh, Narnia. And it's about this two horses, a boy horse and a girl horse, and a boy riding the boy horse and a girl riding the girl horse are on the run. They're fleeing slavery in Calerman, and they're headed for Narnia. And so they've passed through the desert, and they're about to reach Narnia and its allies, but a de- a, an army that they're aware of is coming uh, to attack Narnia and her allies. And so they're racing to inform them, but they're not really moving fast enough. And so a lion comes and is chasing them. And they begin to run much faster. And finally, they get to a place where they see a gate, and they can see that there's safety beyond the gate. And so they're rushing for the gate. But the boy horse, who's named Bree, he's a great war horse, and he pulls ahead. But Shasta 
the boy riding, Bree, starts to say, we have to go back. The lion is getting closer to the girls. Indeed, the lion gets close enough that the lion can drag its claws through the girl that's riding the girl horse. And Shasta is yelling that we have to go back, but Bree doesn't, doesn't hear anything. He's so intent, he's so afraid, that he's so intent on reaching the gate that that's all he's doing. He's running as hard as he can, and he finally makes it to safety. But before he does, Shasta, the boy, jumps off his back and runs back and tries to, to scare the lion away, which he actually does by yelling. So a night passes. Everyone's resting. Everyone's exhausted. The girl is healing from her, the scars that have been put into her back. And they gather again the next morning. And this is what Bree, the horse, says after the fact. He says, slavery is all I'm fit for. How can I ever show my face among the free horses of Narnia? I who left a mare and a girl and a boy to be eaten by lions, while I galloped all I could to save my own wretched skin. Well, the girl tries to press in and says, listen, it was a terrifying moment. We all did what we could do. We were running for our lives. And Bree says, it's all very well for you. You haven't disgraced yourself, but I've lost everything. Now here, they found safety and, and rest in the, the house of the hermit of the southern marsh. And the hermit comes and says to Bree, my good horse, you've lost nothing but your self-conceit. You're not quite the great horse you had come to think from living among poor dumb horses. Of course, you were braver and cleverer than them. You could hardly help being that. It doesn't follow that you'll be anyone ever very special in Narnia. But as long as you know you're nobody special, you'll be a very decent sort of horse on the whole and taking one thing with another. What is the hermit of the southern marsh saying to the great war horse Bree? All right, Bree wakes up the next day. He's forlorn. He said, how could I not have gone to help to women in distress? What kind of horse am I? I'm going back to Callerman to be a slave. And the hermit says, you know, please save your pity party. Right? The only thing that you've lost is your conceit. You thought yourself great because of the company that you kept. And the horses in Callerman are nothing but dumb animals. They don't speak. They're not like the noble horses of Narnia. And in that company, of course, you appeared great. But now that you're moving back into Narnia, you realize that you're not nearly as special as you think you are, but that's great because you'll actually be a decent sort of horse. You will be one that's woken up rather than one that's dumb and asleep. There's an analogy there. Now, of course, Bree wasn't choosing the company he kept. He was in slavery. But by virtue of that company, he was able to to develop a certain image of himself as a great and more noble war horse. And so it is with us that we keep certain company. And in that company, we can develop images of ourselves. We're cultured. We're savvy about different topics. We hang out with people who are nice or who like the things that we do. It may be even that you hang around with people who simply condone what you want to do, and in that you're hanging around with poor dumb horses. And of course, you appear to yourself just as you want to appear to yourself. It's only when a boy who is a slave boy, who has no pedigree, jumps off Bree's back and runs back to help the women that he realizes, oh, I'm not who I think I am. And it's only when we spend real time 
with the poor and the handicapped, with the socially disenfranchised, with those who culture perceives and demeans as sinners, that we begin to realize, oh, we're not who we think we are. Right? If all we do is hang around with the people in this room, goodness, it's rather easy to, to develop a fairly sophisticated opinion of who we are. It's only in engaging those that Jesus describes and commands us to engage that we begin to realize that our images are nonsense. And this is the, maybe the best part of this passage of Scripture is verse 15. Right? Because you can, you can feel a bit of the awkwardness in this room as you begin to think about the implications of what we're saying. You can imagine the awkwardness as Jesus is laying down at a banquet, right? a dinner that's happening, he's saying, yeah, this is who I want you to invite when you really have a banquet. Right? You probably hear maybe a needle drop when he gets done, like, okay, what are you talking about? So in verse 15, one of the, the men say, um, yeah, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. In other words, he says, okay, Jesus, let's not be so serious, right? Let's just remember it. We're all headed to the same place, and we'll all get to partake of bread in the kingdom of God. Let's all have a Coke, right? It's like a Coke, you know, let's, let's just chill out. And so Jesus says, okay, you haven't gotten it. Here's a parable, just to drive it home to you and for you to realize that, no, not everyone is gathering. Not everyone is going to sit down at the banquet. And so this is the parable. Right, the master readies the feast. Now you have to remember that the, pa- the uh, parable obviously is analogous to God the Father who readies the feast. And for God to ready the feast for us means that he sets the table with the body and the blood of his son. Right, remember that as you come forward this morning. That to be invited to the banquet of God is not just any ordinary feast, but it's one that's set at great expense to himself. And when he issues the invitation, he says, okay, well, the invitations have been issued. He says, okay, it's ready. Come now. What do you find? People aren't interested in coming. Well, I've, I've bought this land, and I've got to go check it out. And I've bought five oxen, and I've got to go check them out. And I've just been married, and married, that's very complicated. I've got to tend to my marriage. I can't show up for the feast. And you're shocked by these lame excuses is not approaching they're attending the banquet and it reminds us of the parable of the sower, right? Some seed falls on the path and people don't understand it and the enemy rips it away before they can. And some seed falls among rocky soil and persecution and trial comes and, and robs, uh, robs the plant before it has roots. And some seed falls on the, the soil that has no depth, right? the sandy soil. And there the the cares of the world, of life, choke it out. And only one soil in four actually falls in a place that it grows. And this is the invitation of the banquet that the majority, you see a picture of those who are invited, and of course Israel is being judged in this parable like they're being judged in many of the parables. You've been invited, the banquet is ready, the bridegroom has shown up, and you won't come because you're too busy with mundane. It reminds us how easy it is to miss the holy for the mundane. Right? Is it not profoundly easy? Do you not realize how easy it is? Do you not find yourself sitting, sitting looking at a smartphone or a tablet and missing time to play with your kids? Right? How easy is it 
to miss the holy and what's important for the mundane. When we go to India, to Calcutta, we usually stop at the house of the dying. And this last time that I went was the first time that I got to go into the part of the house of the dying where the dying are actually dying. Right? There are different parts you can go in, but where they're actually dying, we got to go in and visit. And uh, it was a, a pretty astonishing experience. You walk in out of the chaos of Calcutta into a place that's clean and neat and orderly, but you walk into a room and everyone in the room is, on their, is dying. Right? They're brought in off the streets of Calcutta because uh, they are at the end of their life. And so you walk in and it's, it's pretty awkward. You know, what, do you do? what do you do when you walk into a room of dying people? who not only are they dying, but their lives have been horrible. Right? They were born into utter poverty, the poverty of poverty of the world, and their life is coming to an end. And you're like, yeah, that's a bummer. Right? What do you see? You know, you, at the moment, I was very thankful for the language barrier. Right? I, don't have to, I can't talk to anybody, and that's really a bit of a relief in this situation. But you walk in, and you're awkward. And So I saw a man immediately. He's, he's white. He looked like me. Like, I'm going to go talk to that guy. And fortunately, he was Belgian, uh, was one of the volunteers that come from all over the world to work at the House of the Dying, and he spoke English, and so we chatted, and, and of course I said, because I felt like I should, because it's part of my uh, January-only Christian membership, uh, can I help? You know, and of course, when you say that, what are you thinking? You know, please, please say no, <laughs> or, right? I've just done this because it's the polite thing to do, and the polite thing for you to do in return is to say, oh, thanks, but no thanks. And instead, he said, yeah, you, uh, you, you know, he kind of held up his hands like, really? Uh, that's a stupid question, because you, anything you can do is, there's lots to do. And what he did in addition to that was point to, um, when you walked into the room, there was one man who stood out, because his face was covered with tumors, and half his jaw had been eaten away by what I assume was cancer, and he was gross. It was really unpleasant to look at. And so as I'm averting my eyes, he said, yeah, that guy could use some help. Uh, right, of course. And so I went over to this man. And he, we couldn't communicate in language, but he essentially could communicate that I'm always in pain, and it alleviates the pain a little bit if you rub my head. And so I started to massage his head. And what's going on? I'm going to catch something. Right? What's the infection spread here? Right? But in this moment of trying my best not to come into contact with the poor, the blind, the lame, the, right? the outcast, right? God in his grace forced me there. And in this moment of massaging this man's head, it was such a profound moment of, oh, uh, my life is so much bound up in image. There's no difference between this man and me. In the sense that we're both dying, we both depend wholly on the grace of Christ, and he makes me think deeply about how foolish so many commitments in my life are, right? He's here dying and finding joy in the midst of this place as he can, and my goodness, I can't find joy anywhere. And so it's a reckoning, a reckoning by being confronted by those people who exist outside of those people who would facilitate our images. And this, again, is my goodness, what, what Christ longs for, to, for us to be brought into the banquet. And not to make excuses. I would make excuses at the house of the dying, but to come and to sit 
with those he has invited so that we might celebrate the feast, the feast of the Lamb. And yet it's so easy, and I was so close to missing what was profoundly holy in one of the most memorable moments of my life simply for the mundane and for the discomfort of being called into that situation. And to the degree that you do that in your lives, you also will miss the joy of those occasions. And so I hold it out to you that you would engage it for the joy of those occasions, but realize too that the master is not to be taken for granted. And what is his reaction to those who find excuses to not come to his feast? It's anger. Where have you found excuses not to come to the table? Not to participate in the banquet. Right? To engage in the mundane. To worry about your field or your oxen or your marriage rather than being called to the table that includes all of the social outcasts. Realize that God's reaction, the Master's reaction, is anger. And His anger may stand against you for taking His grace to you for granted. Do not think that God gives up His Son so that you can do whatever you want. Or for you to say, I can't make the banquet, or I'm too busy, or I'm distracted by these things, and not make He and His kingdom a priority. And to think, oh, it'll all work out in the end because He's so gracious. Well, what do you make of this parable? Because the end of this parable is His anger, and that those who are invited never make it to the table. That should give us all pause. If it doesn't, you're not thinking about it. There's a beautiful picture of what this is about, and with this we'll close, and it's the story of Narayanan Krishnan, who around 2001, he lives in Madurai, India. You may have heard him. He's, He's been in the news a little bit. And he was a chef overseeing a number of five-star restaurants at various hotels. And one day he's walking to work, very excited to be the man he is, to have accomplished what he's accomplished. And he passes by an older man lying in the street uh, who's ill and who, for hunger, is eating his own excrement. And he just stopped. His world shifted dramatically at that moment. And he went over and he laid hands on the man and he sat with him for a while. And he says, what I'm doing and everything about my life is nothing but ridiculous image. And so he began out of his home to prepare meals from uh, ingredients that were grown and collected from the community and would go out and feed and bathe and cleanse those who were living in the streets and dying. That eventually grows into an actual aid uh, aid agency that goes by the acronym of HELP. And since then, he's served um, in the millions of meals to people who are dying from hunger and people who can't care for themselves. He's a man who saw the social outcasts and went to him and realized in that moment that his entire image of himself and his approach to life was one that was informed simply by a selfish heart. And as it, it obliterated in a moment, he actually decided to come alive and to be about something that was truly important. As you come to the table this morning, as we receive a foretest of the banquet table that God has invited us to, will you give up your image? Will you look forward 
to intentionally dining with the blind and the lame and the social outcast so that you can sit in that moment and be forced into that corner and realize that the way you approach life is ridiculous. And you must either, A, dehumanize all those people and die yourself, or give up your image and start to come alive. Come alive as you come forward this morning. Let's pray. Father, for your great grace, we give you thanks. Your love is abundant and that you would set a table for us as this table, the body and blood of your Son. How can we ever, ever express enough gratitude? And it's not about that. It's about your love for us. About making all things new. And so we thank you for your great grace and pray that you would not permit us to take it for granted, but instead to be moved by it and to really believe in such a deep way that we begin to heed your instructions and pursue life that you prescribe rather than relying on our own sense of what life is. We ask for your grace in this in Christ's name. Amen.